The nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. This podcast discusses animals, how they benefit our society and our planet, the threats they face, and what we can do to protect them. I'm your host, Kristen, and I'm a naturalist by trade. So we're going to zoom through a lot of this stuff real fast, because let me tell you what, (laughs) this bonus episode was intense. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff. So I sat down with T. Francis, who is a really huge uh, spider enthusiast who's gotten to do a lot of work with spiders. She owns a lot of spiders, if you haven't followed her on Instagram or Twitter. And basically what we do is I picked three profiles for different spiders in D&D, and we broke down the stats of the spiders, what kind of spiders they might possibly represent, and what could be done to alter the stats to better represent more types of spiders in a more generic way, basically. But we talked for like four and a half hours, and I'm still, I I think I'm going to break this up into three episodes. So this is going to be the first episode. This is the worst. So once you get through this, it's much shorter. This one's going to run probably about two hours. So I apologize in advance, but there was just so much cool stuff and I wanted to break this one up. But if I was going to break this all up fairly, I was going to make like five episodes and I just don't have the time to do that. So here's one big chunk of episode and this one just covers the generic spider profile, like a basic spider. Nothing big or fanciful about it, just spider. So we're going to just go ahead and jump right on into this. And at the very end, I will quickly plug Francis and my own social media, but I'm not going to do a lot of the usual uh, outro stuff that I do. So let's go ahead and jump on into this so that you guys can enjoy all the cool spider stuff that we discuss. So today we're going to be looking at some of the spiders of the world of Dungeons and Dragons. And we're going to be assessing how lifelike some of these spider traits are. Now, because some of them aren't very specific, they are generic spiders. They don't really help describe the, you know, 40,000 plus (laughs) species of spiders that they could potentially be. So I'm going to talk with T about all these different spiders and maybe what kinds of spiders might fit within these adaptations or maybe what kinds of spiders might be useful to use. We don't know yet. We're going to find out as we go and see uh, what exactly we can come up with for these definitely very fantasy spiders. So thanks for helping me out with this, what seems like an arduous (laughs) bit of a project here. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. It'll be fun. So let's go ahead and start out with the you know, the spider, like the spider spider, the tiny spider that either can be, so this can be either a monster or a companion for people, depending on your preference. Mm-hmm. Granted, uh, considering its hit points, I'm not sure how great of a companion it will be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it won't last very la- long in the battlefield, but it's got some cool stuff going on. So for the spider, it's a tiny unaligned beast. And it starts out with a pretty high armor class, considering it's very tiny. It's actually got a 12 armor class. So this basically suggests that in addition to its exoskeleton, it has the ability to really avoid, I guess, just being stepped on in this case, avoiding boots. I mean, (laughs) who do you think would be a, a good skittering spider, like a spider that's really good at dodging the attention of unwanted guests? 
Oh, Huntsman, I think. The Sporacity family, they are teleportation specialists. The very Ooh. first hint of any movement and they're somewhere else entirely. So I think they'd probably, they'd probably be pretty good at evading any kind of damage. Just, I don't know, they seem to be really good at preempting it, which isn't great when you're trying to handle them, but certainly if it's trying, <laughs> to, avoid, if it's trying to avoid getting killed, it's, it's pretty good at that. So yeah, I think, them, I think they'd be a good one. The hit points are just one or a D4 minus one, so three at the most. And I mean, I kind of get it. They're spiders. They, they don't have a whole lot that they can take as far as damage goes, especially as arthropods, too. They're like nature's Legos. Unfortunately, they can pull apart pretty easily, which is the <laughs> opposite of what you would want in your companion. But, you know, if, if you don't want to have to face too many of these enemies, I guess it's a good thing that, you know, they, it doesn't take much damage. I don't know. I guess maybe a tarantula is one I could see possibly being a three, something that could take slightly more damage, but I don't know how delicate. I don't know. I think the thing with tarantulas is that the larger the spider and the heavier its body, the more vulnerable it is to fatal damage if it gets hit by anything or if it falls a certain distance. Like if it's if its abdomen ruptures, it's in it's in deep trouble. And you find that spiders like tarantulas, especially like gravid females or very well-fed specimens, you know, they're, they're at a higher risk of, of damage just from like a very short fall or a little bit of impact to their abdomen. So I think, you know, a lot of the true spiders, um, again, like huntsmen and some of the wandering spiders, some of the larger ones, they tend to be a little more resilient in that respect because they don't tend to have these huge, great big full-up abdomens that would rupture at the slightest touch they're a bit smaller. Um, not only that, but I think another thing that works in spiders favor in general, when it comes to this kind of thing, taking damage is that, uh, if it loses a leg, even if it loses four legs, it's not going to kill it. It can detach legs. If it, you know, if, if one of the legs is under attack by something, it can detach it and just run off and, you know, be okay. So that, ability to uh, lose a leg and then if it's still got molting to do to be able to regenerate the leg as time goes on means that you know they've they've got that kind of escape ability as well if that makes sense so i think that probably works in their favor too in that respect oh, that's well, interesting i feel like most people would naturally like flock to a tarantula as a potential animal companion or a pet and it's mm. interesting that that's probably the opposite of who you should be going for. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, if you're taking a pet into an environment where it's likely to suffer any damage, like a tarantula probably isn't the easier, that isn't the best one to be taking with you. That's fair. And they're not, with their size too, they're not going to have a whole lot of stealth on their side. So even just sending them in to like spy somewhere is like, you might as well put little targets on the back of those poor spiders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there's that's definitely very large spiders out there that are much stealthier and faster and more resilient than tarantulas. Awesome. Let's see. They've got a 20 foot speed. So that means uh, 20 feet per six seconds, which I mean, that's, that's pretty fast. It's really impressive. That almost makes me think more of like jumping spiders, which I guess wouldn't be running speed. It would be leaping speed, but still like that's, 20 feet in six seconds is pretty fast for something that small. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, I'm, I'm looping back to Huntsman. I've mentioned them several times already and we haven't been talking that long, but when it comes to speed, they are incredibly fast and 
they, they will put a lot of distance between themselves and a threat in the blink of an eye. So looking at that, yeah, I, I can believe it, especially when you're looking at a large one, you know, that might have a five or six inch leg span. Once that gets going, it, it can shift. <laughs> All right, DMs take note. It seems like the Huntsman spider might be the, the best like spider to model this after, but we'll see what happens at the end of all this. So next up is the climb speed, which is also 20 feet, which, I mean, a spider that can climb as fast as it can run would also be equally impressive. But I mean, is that really realistic in spiders? Yeah, I mean, again, with using using my trusty example, the huntsman, like that can, <laughs> that can run along a ceiling, up a wall, just as fast as it can across the floor, quite honestly. They are... They're lightweight enough that, you know, they're not held back by their own bodies in the same way that a tarantula would be, for example. With tarantulas, you have uh, arboreal species, you have terrestrial species, and you have fossorial species, which are burrowing species. Arboreals are very adept when it comes to running up trees and, you know, moving across ground and everything. They tend to be a little bit lighter weight. But if you've got like a terrestrial species running up a vertical surface it's not going to be terribly fast it's going to be clumsy and if it falls it's pretty much had it if it if it if it hurts itself and it ruptures its abdomen you know what i mean so you look at things like huntsman some of the wandering spiders and oh, there are there are several but huntsman i think i'm keep coming back to them because when it comes to looking at a profile like this for something like dungeons and dragons like they're impressive they're big they're impressive they're fast they've got this reputation that in my opinion is completely unfounded because you know essentially they are harmless but people seem to think they're menacing and they're a bit kind of you know aggressive or something and i just think they'd fit this really well so yeah when it comes to running up walls and across ceilings like it doesn't seem to stop them being just as fast as they are across the ground so yeah i think i think it's reasonable to say that it's its speed on the ground is comparable to its speed up a wall as well. But when it comes to climbing, I suppose it depends. Like if you're talking about climbing up a flat surface or a surface of some description, then looking at a spider like that, it can move very quickly. But if you're talking about climbing up something like a thread of silk, for example, there are some spiders out there who are very adept at that and others who are not quite so. So it really depends on what they mean by climbing. If we're going to go with upper surface, then yeah, we'll stick with uh, we'll stick with a huntsman for that and say that yes, I would say their speed estimate is probably pretty much on the money. Yeah, usually usually the climb speed is not restricted to anything in particular. It's just you know how fast you climb up something like a wall or a tree in danger. So it seems sure. like the huntsman's really <laughs> winning in all these Definitely categories at the moment. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> this this might be the ultimate generic spider for these kinds of games. Well, yeah, I don't know. Looking ahead at some of the some of the bits that we've got coming up, we'll we'll see because I've got a few other options, a few other spiders in mind for some of the other things we're going to be covering that would absolutely blow the huntsman out of the water. So, <laughs> ooh, excellent. Mm. Well, st well, when we're moving into the stats, the strength is only a two, which is pretty low considering that the spectrum only goes from one to 20. Uh, two is pretty low, but I mean, for the most part, when spiders do any kind of weightlifting, it's usually not the spider itself. It's usually things like the silk that's doing a lot of the strength work from what I understand. So, I mean, a low strength for a spider, as far as I know, is not an unreasonable or outrageous thing. No. Yeah, so sorry, little babies. We're gonna we're gonna leave that to strength there because <laughs> it's probably pretty safe across the board. The dexterity though is a fourteen, which is pretty good. 
Um, anything that goes above 10 gets bonuses or at least goes above 11 gets bonuses. So these guys have a plus two bonus to their dexterity. So this means that they're pretty agile creatures. They're not, it doesn't put them at the very top of things. And I guess a 14 is pretty good. There's part of me that thinks that, you know, with spider diversity, some might even go a little bit higher. You know, you mentioned all the things that the huntsman spider can do as far as easily climbing up a wall. And I feel like a dexterity of maybe something like 16 yeah. <laughs> with a plus three bonus might be more appropriate for these spiders that have greater agile abilities. Yeah, I think, yeah, if you're going to be keeping it general and just saying like spider as a very sort of basic representative of, as you said, over 40,000 species that all have different specialities, like, yeah, 14 is a pretty fair dexterity, but there are certainly some out there that would score higher if you were going to look at like a more species specific example. And then there are definitely those that would score quite a lot lower as well, if you were to start looking at it that specifically. But I think overall, I think 14 is probably pretty fair. Okay. Constitution is an interesting one because I feel like this might depend on a couple of things. Spiders naturally have venom, although the venom ranges in strength across species. And usually they're not, I assume that to a certain extent, they have some kind of immunity to their venom because if they're going to inject it in a creature, it either has to dissipate within the creature before they eat it or they eat it and their body ignores their own venom. So are spiders, do you know of spiders when they consume their prey after injecting the venom, if they are then ingesting their own venom and their body just ignores it? Well, the thing is there is that venom and poison are different things. So venom, by definition, is something that acts on the body once it's injected. And poison is something that acts on the body once it's ingested. So when a spider injects its venom into its prey, it's, it, it's working on the prey from the inside out in, in as far as it is traveling in its blood. So an, in, an invertebrate's equivalent of blood, hemolymph, this is where the venom goes, it circles around the body and it acts that way. So when a spider is ingesting its own venom, it's not working and it wouldn't be working on the spider in the same way that it's working on the prey because it's ingesting it into its, into its digestive system where it would just be broken down. In terms of if it were to be uh, bitten by its own venom, so if another spider of the same species were to bite it, it can kill it. Yeah, you do see it happen, especially with things like, you know, female spiders who are being approached by a male spider of the same species who may want to mate with her. If she's not in the mood and she decides to eat him, she'll bite him and pretty much exactly the same thing will happen to him that would happen to a prey animal. Um, but yeah, it's based on the difference between uh, delivery method. So it's not a poison it's a venom. Therefore, if she's eating it or if he's eating it, it's not going to affect them. That's a fair point. So then my next question would be spiders in general, uh, especially ones that catch things within webs, uh, tend to not necessarily be too picky. They'll eat a pretty broad array of invertebrates. So how tolerant are they of eating poisonous invertebrates that come into their web? Are they good at avoiding them or are they pretty indiscriminate and either they can tolerate the poison or they find out the hard way that it's their prey's poisonous? Um, I don't know of anything off the top of my head, and this may just be because I'm kind of on the spot. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> of anything off the top of my head that would be poisonous to a spider to eat. Um, if it was something that had venom, like, for example, a wasp, if it were able to sting the spider and inject its own venom via a sting, then the spider would potentially die depending on you know size and how much venom is injected and everything it, it wouldn't come off terribly well if it got stung by something that had venom of its own um 
when it comes to poisonous things, poisonous, yeah, I don't know what would be poisonous to eat. I know there are insects and other invertebrates out there that have toxins that make them extremely unpalatable to other animals. But I don't think these really work on spiders so much because I think a lot of that depends on there being a bitter taste. And I, I don't think that would affect a spider in as far as like it doesn't have the same kind of mouth parts and the same kind of sense of taste as say mammals and birds do when they're out there hunting for things. But certainly there are going to be things that a spider will sense as potential prey and go to attack and then have second thoughts about because it's either too heavily armored and it's not worth the energy that would, that it would take the spider to try and pierce the armor or find a vulnerable point on that invertebrate. So I'll just let it go. Um, sometimes you'll find that if a certain type of flying invertebrate ends up in an orb web, the spider will come and investigate it and for whatever reason decide, actually, no, I'm not going to bother with that. So there are obviously certain things that will put a spider off eating other invertebrates, you know, of certain descriptions. So yeah, I think there's, I think there's a bit there that would suggest that they have some awareness of what's good to eat and what isn't in terms of their own safety. Okay, I was I was wondering a bit about that because I know that with some spiders, like or with with many spiders at least, their vision ranges. They may not necessarily see those aposematic colors that warn that something is toxic. And so, what stops the spider from potentially eating something mm. that may be harmful? Or spiders can just eat almost anything that may potentially be poisonous. And so that's why I was a little curious about that. But I mean, again, when we're talking about forty thousand species, it's really hard to generalize them. <laughs> yeah. So, so with an eight constitution, that's not particularly high, but at the very least, you know, they're not, it's a little tricky for me just because they do eat such a wide variety of prey. You know, yeah. when we think of large charismatic mammals and birds and stuff like that, they tend to be somewhat specialized in a lot of cases. They might focus on particular prey. Those who are generalist tend to have stronger stomachs because they risk <laughs> eating things that may be uh, unsavory. So it makes me feel like as a generalist animal that they might have, at the very least, I might give them a 10, which is just kind of like that neutral where they get no real bonus for their constitution. And they're just like on the nose with that. Yeah. I'm not I think sure they should be in the negative. <laughs> I think I'd agree with that. Okay. This is one of those things where it's really tricky because again, like, you know, there's the diversity of spiders. And at the same time, I don't know how many people study like, the digestive capabilities of spiders and whether or not they can like digest certain kinds of toxins. So, yeah, I'm not sure, honestly. It's not something that I've done a lot of looking into myself either, but I think that's probably going to change once I'm done talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to learn something new today. We are. <laughs> now, intelligence is, of course, insulting because I remember that really awesome study that came out, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, where they actually trained the spider to I believe it was jump on command for reinforcement so to and I've seen plenty of videos of people interacting with pet spiders and things like that and I feel like giving spiders an intelligence of one which is as low as you can get uh is kind of insulting to spiders yeah I'd say so I think um I was actually having this conversation with somebody yesterday about what intelligence actually is and what kind of behaviors could be perceived as intelligence but are perhaps less so it's more kind of instinctive and just you know acting on uh, reflex to certain stimuli but to look at 
uh, another species or not so much well you know actually this this is a, a genus of spiders so rather than huntsman which is very sort of it's a whole family it's very general to look at a specific genus of jumping spiders that spring to mind when i think of intelligence uh, the genus is portia and portia jumping spiders are specialists in that they hunt other spiders and there's footage of them available you can look up online working out how best to attack a spider that is in a web so it'll find an orb weaver somewhere that's sat in its web waiting for prey to fly in that it can go and ambush and this Porsche jumping spider is is figuring out exactly which approach it should take to that web what it, where it should jump from what kind of power it should put into its jump you know it, it measures these situations as they arise it's not an instinctive you know see something respond to movement whatever it actually has to work out exactly how it's going to go about attacking this spider and taking it down because the risks involved with it going wrong are huge it's jumping into the web of an orb weaver if it misjudges it and it gets stuck that orb weaver is going to turn around bite it and it's history but you don't really see it happen with these things because they're so capable of figuring out exactly how to approach these situations they take the time to assess what this particular setting is going to respond is going to require and then they go for it so certainly there is a certain amount of intelligence there and as you said in the studies that have been conducted with jumping spiders that have uh, seemingly learned to jump on command you know all of this would suggest that there's a, that there is a certain amount of cognitive ability when it comes to you know making decisions about whether it's going to jump where it's going to jump how how far how much power it needs to put into a jump all of this kind of thing um i'm not sure really what you could call intelligence in you know other types of spiders so if you look at tarantulas for example you know some people will say that they'll get used to being handled or you know there's some people say that they've observed behavior that looks almost like play but when you actually look at these kind of behaviors and examine them and study them a little bit more closely, you see that it's more an instinctive thing. So they're figuring out that a situation may not be threatening because, you know, nothing's happened to them after they've sensed whatever movements they've sensed. And therefore they know from that, that they're not looking at a threat. It's just something that's there. So a human handling it, for example, it's not necessarily the fact that it's learning. It doesn't necessarily remember when you go to pick it up again. Oh yeah, that's what this is. I remember I've learned this. It's more that it's just responding to what's happening to it in that moment. So yeah, I think a lot of the things that people perhaps perceive as intelligence could just be assigned to instinctive behavior, but there is definitely measurable intelligence in some species of spider and the first one that sprung to mind when we were going over all this earlier was Portia for that one because the things that they do are just incredible so yeah one is a very unfair score there I think yeah and I and it's funny you brought up Portia because I remember like watching what was it I, I think that they were featured in like a BBC documentary one of David Attenborough's many yeah and I remember him him narrating that and of course you know it's it's a very anthropomorphic journey but still it you know I guess it depends on, you know, like you said, how we're going to define intelligence versus instinct. Now, instinct has always been a weird word because I don't feel like anybody agrees what instinct is. But when I think of instincts versus intelligence, when I think of intelligence, I think of animals and things being able to take in factors around them, process it, and then react in a potentially novel way based on the information they've taken in versus in uh, instinct where things are taken in 
and they react with their pre-existing repertoire of behaviors for those situations. But of course, how can you know what's novel and what's not novel if you don't know 100% of their behaviors? And so it's one of those things where you begin to spiral down this rabbit hole of (laughs) how do we define all these? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, definitely. No, I understand. And yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You, I think my kind of base definition of it in this context is, you know, to, to give an example that most people could visualize, go back to the tarantula, you know, that someone's keeping as a pet. If you handle it and you then sort of, you know, you see, oh, actually, you know, it's responding to me well, this is fine. And then you go back to handle it again a few days later and it does the same thing. You know, has it remembered that you handled it before or is it just responding in exactly the same way it did the first time you did it, realizing that the stimuli that it's experiencing are not those of a threat. Um, they're not, it's not hunting. It's not looking for prey. There is nothing to suggest that you're prey. So is it just having the same kind of impulsive, like reflex responses the second time around exactly the same way it did the first time with no memory of the first experience? Do you know what I mean? So I think uh, in that respect, that's that's kind of how I define it when talking about this kind of thing, you know, intelligence versus instinct. But yeah, it's a huge issue that has so many different facets to it. And the more you look at it, the more complex it gets. So, yeah. Yeah, I always, I always used to interpret instinct as like, you know, like this genetic coding for behavior, basically, like it's a default library of behaviors. But, yeah, yeah. you know, even, even for taking that kind of approach, it really doesn't take into account (laughs) the complexities of life and what animals are capable of. And, you know, the thing is, is, is problem solving, can problem solving be an instinct or is it strictly intelligence? Because animals can adapt their problem solve to survive, but they may only be able to problem solve under certain circumstances. And if that's the case, then is it more of an instinct or intelligence? We, We don't, we don't know. It's one of those things where, you know, this, we're getting into more soft science and less hard science. This isn't something that you can necessarily measure and define well. It sometimes comes down to how are we going to interpret these behaviors based on our perception? Mm. And it, it, you know, whenever you do it based on <laughs> that, it's going to come with human biases. Yeah, definitely. But I'd say... For, for intelligence, I mean, like we said, it can range between species. I, I would probably give them maybe a six or an eight mm-hmm. at the very least for like a base. And that's just basically saying like they're not, they're not stupid creatures. They just might not be able to problem solve in a lot of circumstances. Like if they're put in a novel situation, they may not be able to react. And I know that tarantulas can freeze up or panic if they find themselves in uncomfortable situations and uh i've definitely seen it backfire on owners who haven't taken the time to introduce them to the stimuli of handling often enough and uh it doesn't always work out well no (laughs) no i think that's a fair basic score i mean you know you'd be hard pressed to find a spider who's gonna sit there and just let you kill it there is obviously a certain amount of awareness of its environment and I suppose to anthropomorphize for a moment, we'll say, you know, they're intelligent enough to know to, to run away or to, you know, flee from danger or to defend themselves in a certain way. So I really do think that one is an unfair score for that. I would say that six to eight is, is more reasonable for like an across the board basic spider. And I mean, even thinking of just like the wolf, the wolf spiders in our backyards, like I've seen, (laughs) <laughs> I've seen a mother wolf spider be a mother wolf spider before. Like mm-hmm. there is 
I, I don't question the intelligence of them, even if I don't have all the empirical data to prove it. Based on my own personal experiences with spiders, I can't imagine them being below a six in intelligence. Like there is definitely a basis there enough for them to be determined to survive and in some cases defend their young and their reactions aren't necessarily uh, predictable based on their behaviors. So that alone tells me that there is some process of problem solving and they're not always going to react the same way. And uh, yeah, definitely. And D&D needs to work on whoever they're hiring, whatever wildlife ecologist they didn't (laughs) talk to for this. (laughs) Uh, wisdom surprisingly is a 10 though. So wisdom, we're talking like intuition, which in some ways makes sense. Like if we're talking about, you know, you talked about, you know, tarantulas learning to be in new and novel situations. Like intuition is often based on like our life experiences and the culmination of those things and how it changes how we react and behave because we've learned so much. So, I mean, a 10, again, that's like, baseline for it so it's saying that you know spiders are able to take from their experiences and and understand at the very least things like how to better hunt for food or how to identify danger and how to react to it Mm. where would intuition come into it because i mean if it if we're talking wisdom yeah when you mention you know it's about your sort of the culmination of your life experiences what you've learned and how you've been able to apply that to how you move forward in your life you know that that would be the definition of wisdom but you know when you think about things like intuition and i'm obviously intuition is is a very broad term and one that conjures all kinds of images of things that don't apply to spiders but i'll explain it in a sec like your ability to sense the world around you and act accordingly based on information that you're perceiving that other organisms would perhaps not be able to perceive so in terms of spiders you know i'm thinking about things like their ability to sense vibrations and their ability to differentiate between different types of vibrations which would affect their behavior in terms of you know do i stand and hunt do i run away is this just background noise and something i don't need to worry about at all you know like that to me feels like it could possibly fall under the category of wisdom what do you think yeah and especially when we think of like i know that it's it, and this gets so tricky with invertebrates because <laughs> they don't go through, of course, the same development that we do. And in the case of spiders, they hatch out, you know, in most cases, essentially like an almost miniature version of the adult, and they immediately have to sometimes start acting like the adult uh, very soon in their life cycle because they don't live for very long. Mm-hmm. So, I guess the best way that I would think to measure it is since wisdom is often something that comes with time. Um, do you feel like from their early juvenile stages up to their adult stages that spiders have to learn and grow a little bit, like to understand their adaptations and their surroundings? Like, is there a, do they explore when they're young enough to try to learn as adults? And does it like, does that exploration, that learning curve affect them in the long run? That is a very good question and one that I think the answer, although for the most part pretty much the same, there is perhaps a little bit of variation between different types of spiders because when you look at things like wolf spiders, pre-social species like spitting spiders, um, they, they have a certain amount of maternal input very early on and then the spiderlings will disperse and go off and do their own thing after they've had a little bit of maternal support. Whereas you have other species, which pretty much as soon as the egg sac is laid, 
the mother either dies or just leaves it and is nowhere to be seen when the babies emerge. So they don't have any kind of maternal input at all. They pretty much just have safety in numbers for their very first uh, instar. And then once they molt to their next stage, the next instar, they disperse and they go out and they basically start behaving exactly as they would as adults. So in the case of orb weavers, they're spinning tiny little orb webs and catching tiny prey. And there's no, you know, they don't seem to learn anything in particular that, that sort of teaches them how to do these things. That is all innate. You know, they know how to go out and construct a web. They know what they're looking for when it comes to how to sense prey that's entered the web what's what feels like a threat what feels like something that went you know that passed by that wasn't a threat but still caused vibrations to the web you know there's all these kind of behaviors that they just seem to have straight away you know so there's no um learning it's just all kind of pre-programmed so and i don't even think necessarily that there's any learning involved when it comes to the ones that have some uh, aspect of maternal care in their early stages because it's not like they're going out and watching their mother hunt she's bringing prey back to them and they're feeding on it as a group i think it's more a case of they just have a little bit more support in the beginning to help them get a little bit bigger and stronger so that when they molt to their next developmental stage and they're off in the world by themselves they've had a head start and they've you know they've got the kind of um the strength that they need to go out and be able to tackle that successfully straight off the bat. So, yeah, I don't really think that, you know, when you see things like mammals, which are like carnivorous mammals, like big cats and wolves and, you know, things like that, the babies, they watch their mothers, they learn from their mothers, they learn how to hunt, they learn where to hunt, they learn all this kind of thing. There's none of that with spiders. They just, they go out and they do. So, no, I don't really think there's any kind of, cumulative experience that they have that shapes how they develop and how that you know how successful they are with hunting and things it's just all kind of pre-programmed okay so maybe we'll we'll subtract some from the wisdom and invest it back into that intelligence maybe uh <laughs> yeah it's kind of I'm, I'm trying to figure out where exactly it would fall whether it would fall into intelligence or whether it would fall into into wisdom and you know i mean this is perfectly this is Oh my God, this is purely <laughs> personal kind of interpretation, like how I'm reading, you know, what intelligence is versus wisdom in the context of a Dungeons and Dragons creature, you know? And I don't know, I just, to me personally, it feels like the ability to sense the world around it and, you know, act in the way that it does and differentiate between different things, it, it does fall firmly between intelligence and wisdom for me. So yeah, maybe... Maybe do take a couple points off wisdom and chuck it back into intelligence, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe we'll just give them straight numbers. We'll give them like eight and eight across the board, like eight yeah. intelligence, eight wisdom. Well, and... yeah, to be fair, I mean, you know, they had one in intelligence. So even if you were to take like five off the wisdom and chuck it back in there, I think, you know, that's pretty even. But yeah, eight and eight, I think <laughs> it's pretty. Because <laughs> yeah, it's enough to where they're not like on the nose with it, but they're just, they're slightly under. And it's not a huge disadvantage if they have a minus one it's just you know they're not it doesn't give it doesn't give them any big advantages and they're not necessarily like even with other creatures that maybe actually do have a stronger cognitive development or that you know do have uh the ability to take in remember and process more of their life to remember for future like reference the way they would for wisdom yeah yeah, you know, thinking about it, I think I'd, I'd, I'd almost be inclined to, if I had to stick to the numbers that were put out in front of me, I'd be inclined to flip it on its head and say that wisdom and intelligence, they've got it the wrong way around. 
Like, I think that they deserve more in the way of intelligence and wisdom. You know, when you're looking at it in the, in the uh, sort of from the point of view of what have they taken from this experience? What have they remembered and what are they taking forward? You know, what do they know not to do next time? What do they know worked for them last time? I, I really don't think there is a whole lot of that compared to like the intelligence factor. So, yeah, I'm almost, I'm almost thinking you could take like maybe six off the wisdom and give it to the intelligence and i think maybe that might be where i'd be inclined to settle okay that's fair and it it really is tricky because to a certain extent even though they do define intelligence and wisdom for the most part in dnd at the same time like if you ever get a chance to play you'll find that a lot of dungeon masters and people who run the game really kind of put put their own interpretation on things and it can vary somewhat so you know we were talking about intuition and wisdom and intuition even though for me it takes a mixture of wisdom and intelligence to have intuition some people just straight up put intuition and wisdom into wisdom Mm. and i'm like well you know you intelligence is important because even if you're not necessarily super book smart you do have to have you know pretty good cognitive abilities to be able to do things like learn really well from things and to be able to problem solve so you know to a certain extent you can have as much wisdom as you want, but if, you, if you're not a creative problem solver and you're not super intelligent, you know, that wisdom's only going to take you so far. Now, yeah. Yeah, granted, yeah. that's not how it's used in the game, but that's just, <laughs> that's one of the ways that I look at it for like characters and developing their personalities mostly. Yeah. All right. And charisma, which is, again, very insulting, much like <laughs> intelligence yeah. work. They gave them a two. Yeah, I took that personally. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> It is insulting because, you know, again, 40,000 creatures, I get it. There are some spiders that look like they crawled out of people's nightmares, but it represents such a tiny portion of spiders in general. And some of them are just, you know, I definitely had the spiders where it's like, at first I thought they were so ugly, but then I kept looking at them and they got cuter as I looked at them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, they're definitely that ugly cute. And yeah, I just, I, I can't imagine... I mean, again, these are biases because obviously I've, I've mentioned many times how much I love invertebrates. People know it. And, you know, anybody who looks at your Twitter will know you have very <laughs> strong biases towards spiders. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess I do make that pretty obvious, don't I? Uh, just a wee bit. But I mean, I... I I, I don't, I, I'll, I'll never understand it because I remember the first time I realized I love spiders and it's, let's face it, jumping spiders are the gateway spider. <laughs> they, are, yeah. they are the spider that brings everybody around because of those just big old eyes. And I remember the first time, like I was looking, I was looking at something moving and I realized there was a spider on the wall and I walked up to it to look at it closer and it turned and it just looked at me. Yeah. And it was just so weird to have a creature look at me so straightforward like yes like who are you (laughs) I'm just like oh my goodness and that's my favorite thing in the world now is the moment that a jumping spider decides to acknowledge your existence and it snaps its little head and looks at you and it's just like oh hi and it's like hi buddy I know have you ever kept them before I haven't I have been tempted more than once to keep one because we get them in our house all the time like I keep plants indoors and outdoors and I have like 
apparently a really great place for spiders to exist. So I've had like bold jumping spiders and stuff like that in my house, all kinds. And I've, there's been a part of me that's been tempted. I'm like, I'll just get a little critter keeper and I'll put like plants in there. And I'll, you know, every time we catch a gnat in the house, we'll put it in the critter keeper and let them hunt. Well, the reason I ask is because one thing, you know, you're saying about when you, with the moment that a jumping spider notices you and turns to look at you, the funniest thing for me is when you've got one inside a transparent container and you're walking past and it does this thing where it kind of looks down straight through what to itself is the floor. So it might be standing on the side of the enclosure and it'll just look straight down in between its front legs. Like it's practically putting its eyes up against the clear like surface that it's standing on just to eyeball you a bit. If you're standing on that side, it's just, it's the funniest thing. They just kind of, they kind of lean forward and just put their faces right down to the to the glass and just stare at you and it's just oh. it's so cute so like when you're out and about and you find one like in your garden or like on the wall or whatever you're more used to seeing it looking up you know like it turns to look up at you or it'll turn its head towards you and it's kind of either looking straight ahead of it or up above it but when it's inside something that it can actually look through the floor of as it were it does it will look straight down and stare at you through the um, surface that it's standing on and it's just the cutest thing <laughs> Yeah, sounds so adorable. <laughs> it is. They're ridiculous. They really are. But you know, I mean, jumping spiders are the one that most people will think of when they think of cute, charismatic spiders. But to me, there are so many different spiders out there that have they just ooze charisma for different reasons. There's a species of tarantula that I keep. Um, it's a very small. It's a small dwarf species, and it's from Brazil originally. The scientific name for it is Typhoclina celadonia. Um, and it's commonly known as the Brazilian jewel tarantula. They're very, very small. And they're the rainbow ab- ones? Yeah, they're oh. absolutely mind-bendingly stunning. Like I've got the molt from mine sat in front of me as we speak because I'm sat at my desk. And like, this, is, this is a molt. You know, this is literally just a, a molt that it discarded out of its little trapdoor nest. And it's still got these beautiful jewel colors on it. On its abdomen, it's got this beautiful ruby red, gold, turquoise. Oh, it's just amazing. The legs have got this amazing, like almost like royal blue and black. And then towards the body, like the femurs are kind of a pearlescent white. They're just the most unbelievably stunning spiders and they're fluffy and they're chunky. They've got a very interesting build for a tarantula. Like you don't see too many tarantulas whose abdomens look almost hunched. You know, when you think of something like a black widow, for example, it's got quite a small uh, cephalothorax and it's got this great big hunched abdomen that almost sits over the top of it. These, these type of cleaner, Celadonia, they have a similar build, like the females, adult females, like when they get very fat, they've eaten a lot or if they're carrying eggs, their abdomens are really big and chunky and they kind of hang over the cephalothorax a little bit. They've got this big bulbous butt that, I don't know, it's just different <laughs> for most tarantulas. Most tarantulas don't have that build. And of course, there's this super endearing habit that they have of building this trapdoor up in the, up in the um, trees. They're meticulous about it. You know, they pick little bits of lichen and moss from the surrounding area and attach it all together with silk and create this little retreat that has a trapdoor over the top of it that to the naked eye is completely, you can't see it. You can't see it at all until the spider moves and, you know, comes out of it for something. The one that I have here has built one. And I mean, obviously I know where it is, so I know where to look. But if somebody handed me that enclosure without telling me what was in there, I'd just be like, there's nothing in here. Nothing lives in here. 
there is nothing in here. It's so well camouflaged. And I just think, you know, for something like that to look so unbelievably beautiful and yet spend its entire life hidden inside a trapdoor where nobody can ever see it. <laughs> There's something really <laughs> cute about that. That feels to me like playing dress up at home that no one's ever going to see, you know, it's just really cute. But there's other species as well. You know, when you look at the crab spiders, the family Tomicidae, there are flower crab spiders out there. Oh, that I love have having these... those in my garden. Oh, They're so cute. Amazing. There's one species that occurs... I think they have been found once or twice in the UK, but they're not what I would consider to be, you know, a widespread native species, but they're certainly present in Europe and other places. And their um, name is Thomisus anustus. And the only one I've ever seen, I found it in um, Portugal and it was white with a little bit of beige on it. But some of the photos I've seen of them when they're like really flushed with pink and everything, like they turn pink and they're absolutely stunning looking things, you know, and you would never ever see one if you were staring at it on a flower that it was blending in with. Even though they have this incredible color and this very interesting kind of build, they camouflage so flawlessly with their surroundings. I get uh, Misumina vatia, which is another flower crab spider in my garden. Um, they're spread pretty far and wide across the UK and they are able, the females particularly, are able to change colour. So they'll start out bright white, but then if they decide they want to go hunting on a yellow flower, they can turn bright yellow. Um, so they can change their appearance depending on, you know, what they're trying to camouflage with. And I go looking for them in the garden here and I, I'll be staring for ages, staring and staring. I was like, I know they're here, I just can't see them. And then all of a sudden I'll see it and it will be literally right there in front of me out in the open, just sat on top of a flower, not trying to hide, but it's camouflage is so unbelievably effective that right inches from my nose, I couldn't see it, you know? And I just think there's something amazing about that. And they're just so beautiful to look at. And I realized that, you know, if you're a bit creeped out by the shape of a spider, you know, the long legs and the big butt and, you know, all this, I, I can understand that, yeah, you might not necessarily find that kind of thing cute. But if you take an objective look at it and you think about it in terms of charisma, like that's extremely charismatic. The fact that it can blend into the different flowers that it's sitting on, the fact that it can camouflage itself so effectively that you won't see it right in front of your face and it's looking unbelievably beautiful at the same time. Like that's super charismatic if you ask me. So yeah, when I said I took that personally, I meant it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's funny too. I, I went to a park recently and we were leaving the park and there was this rose stem sticking out on the side of the trail. And I paused because I noticed there was just like a little notch in the crevice between the stem and a leaf that was jutting out. And I was like, that's weird. Is, is, is there something wrong with it? Is this like, is it going to grow something out of it or what? And I looked closer and closer. And finally I realized I was staring at this cute little spider that just had all its little legs pulled in oh. and it's got its little, its little, uh, uh, but sitting there and I'm just like oh baby what are you doing and I just I've stared at it for a good like 20 minutes it was just so cute just the positioning of it it just yeah. you know, it, it, it tore it tore at my heartstrings I was like oh baby <laughs> so yeah I mean you know we can, we obviously can mention that some people have a fear of spiders part of it is of course the way that spiders are presented to people yeah which is often problematic, but you know, in a sense, we're we're often talking about fantasy settings. In some cases, it can be sci-fi settings, and it can be modern. But in most cases, when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons, we're talking about fantasy settings. So yeah. they're not 
getting all the, you know, media and things thrown out them, teaching them to fear spiders. And in most cases, people in these circumstances would not have reason to fear spiders, except for if they had a negative experience with one for the most part, because most people are going to go about their business and not be bothered by spiders and spiders aren't going to bother them. So I feel like we can give them at least the 10, like put them on that, you know, even level where people don't necessarily live in constant fear and phobia of it, but people also don't necessarily have to love them either. Yeah. You said the trail's up to 20, right? Yeah. 20 is like, you know, top of the cream of the crop. And I know that like your Brazilian jewel would be like your 20. (laughs) I don't, I don't care what the rules are. I don't care what anyone says, but I'm giving them a straight 25 and I will hear no difference. (laughs) (laughs) All the spiders in this game are Brazilian jewels and peacock spiders and (laughs) and crab spiders. Yep. 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 I'm actually a pretty big fan of lynx spiders. Lynx spiders can have some really cool coloration. I've seen some really bright green ones that just blew me away. I've got a colony of lynx spiders from that originate from Madagascar behind me at the moment that are rainbow colored and there are actually babies hatching behind me as I speak and they are absolutely stunning. So if you imagine the green lynx spider that you all have seen, um, if you, if it's one of the American species, it's likely Mm -hmm. the uh, Pusetia genus, which is the same genus as these guys. These are Pusetia leucosi. These have a green body. They've got similar markings, but on their abdomen, they've got a bit of blue as well. Um, and their legs, where, where the legs attach to the body, they start out a kind of whitish, grayish blue, and then they fade into bright, brilliant yellow. And then towards their feet, they turn orange and red. So they've got this like rainbow spectrum on, on all eight of their legs. And this really movie. making me regret being an audio format, not a video <laughs> format. Seriously, check out my Twitter. I posted pictures of them today. They were my oh. post today. So you can you can have a little look at those. But uh, yeah, I mean, they're on my Instagram. They're on my Twitter. I post pictures of these guys quite a lot because they are just so unbelievably beautiful. So yeah, enjoy those. <laughs> oh, man. Spider porn. <laughs> All the spider porn. That's all Aractober has been is just me looking at all these like even even ones that people consider ugly. Like somebody posted a picture of like a bolus spider. And I get it. It was bulbousy and ungainly looking. But I looked at it and I just saw a spider that looks like its abdomen is made up of a toasted marshmallow. Like I love those. Or it's a little chunk of like caramel. Like it's just it's one of those things where I can't view them negatively. I have so many positive experiences with spiders, even even before I learned to love spiders, I, I mean, I had a fear of spiders in the sense of I would never want to find one on my body without me knowing when I was a kid. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't see a spider and intuitively think I should kill that when I was younger. Like it yeah. was more of, ooh, what's that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I understand that that's the benefit of what helped me get closer to spiders was I wasn't born and raised with that innate fear. Even though my parents swear up and down, we had brown recluses in our, uh, in our shed when we lived in Virginia, they swore up and down. We had like a bunch of brown recluses and I'm like, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what's the problem? I don't get it. <laughs> like, yeah, I didn't they, They've got an unbelievably bad rap for no good reason, really. I mean, yes, their venom is capable of some stuff, but like, they're not going to kill you. And most of the stories that you hear about people who are like, oh, I got bit by a brown recluse and I almost lost my leg, you know, it's more likely to be a secondary bacterial infection than the spider's venom that it caused that. But, when you've got 
you know, medical doctors out there who are giving out information about spider bites without actually knowing whether a spider was responsible for the wound in the first place, it doesn't help to change people's perception. So brown recluses have got this unbelievably bad reputation. And, you know, having worked with them several times myself in the past, like I know what they're like and I know that they are not aggressive or defensive at all. They're unbelievably shy. To get one to bite you would take some work. And if you were to get bitten, the chances are it would be a dry bite anyway, because they don't want to use a valuable resource like venom for no reason. And if there was venom injected, the chances of it reacting badly and you actually having, you know, a necrotizing wound as a result of that, just from the spider venom alone, not counting any kind of secondary bacterial infection, the chances of that happening are ridiculously low. So I think it's, you know, it's one of those things like if you had wandering spiders the genus Phenutria, or you know funnel web spiders from australia attract species wandering around in your shed then yes be be afraid about being bitten by one of those because they they can kill you but recluses like i just feel like that's really bad press has just made things so bad for those poor things I feel bad for them yeah it's something we specialize in whether it's sharks or snakes or brown recluses like we just specialize in making all these spiders out to be these horrible creatures like uh what was it i did my interview with dr sebastian and um he was like you know i'm pretty sure it was my interview with him where he mentioned like they did a study with a black widows and they were trying to see what would cause them to bite and they had to like harass the crap out of the spider and basically like were pressing down on it to get it to bite because nothing else got it to bite like it it was so hesitant like you said to use something as valuable as venom and it it took actually threatening the spider to get it to bite and it just it's one of those things where it's it's a really unjust reputation that spiders are aggressive because they're not aggressive they're defensive and there's a really big difference between those two things yeah exactly that's that's the thing you know i mean over here we don't have any dangerous spiders in this country but the media is absolutely hell-bent on having everybody believe that false widows are deadly and dangerous and a problem we've had schools shut down because they found a few false widows in them over here it's just absolutely ridiculous you know and you get these interviews with people who claim they got bitten by one and they had this big necrotizing wound and you know anybody who knows anything about these spiders is sitting there reading it thinking okay well they don't possess the kind of venom that would cause cell death they don't possess a cytotoxic venom that would cause necrotizing you know um skin problems like skin lesions they have a neurotoxic venom so the symptoms will be completely different and then the guy will go on to say that you know oh well he was out in his workshop and he felt something scratch his leg but he didn't think anything of it at the time and it was only later on when he got inside and he saw that he had you know a swollen uh, area on his leg and then he spoke to a doctor and a doctor said it was definitely a false widow it's like okay so nobody actually saw a spider in the vicinity anyway at all you didn't think to check it at the time you were in a filthy workshop surrounded by tools and like old screws and rusty nails and god knows Mm -hmm. what else you know could it possibly be that you nicked yourself on like an old bit of metal sticking out of something and you've got a secondary bacterial infection in the tiny cut that it caused like could that is that not a more likely scenario but no we're going to jump straight to deadly false widow almost loses uh, causes man to lose his leg like that's that's exactly the thought process over here and it's so beyond infuriating but and, and yeah that is really infuriating to think about because i like streptococcal bacteria lives on your skin and for the most part like it's not necessarily harmful but there can be certain circumstances where it can potentially become harmful 
Yeah. You know, this is how you get things like toxic shock syndrome is this all exists in your body anyway. It's just whether or not you create circumstances where it can become dangerous yeah. and, you know, things like a, a dirty workshop and cuts and open wounds are really easy ways to get staph infections, which can be deadly. Yeah. And that's not a spider's fault. That's just human existence. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, you know, it just, it smacks of, oh, it's a slow news day at the newspaper office. They've got to come up with something that's going to have people gasping and, you know, running out to their shed to see if they can find spiders to kill. And it's just like, can we not think of something a little bit more intelligent to talk about than this? Because this is old. It comes around every year. It's always the same ridiculously baseless, you know, uh, anecdotal evidence and even when they ask, you know, spider experts to chime in and they say the same thing every time, like, this is just being over-sensationalized. This isn't what happens. These aren't dangerous. They basically ignore it. You know, they're like, oh, well, yeah, we got some facts, but they, they're not really what we wanted to hear. It doesn't really uh, mm. serve our sensationalist agenda. So we'll just, we'll just gloss over that and go back to talking about this horrendous flesh-eating wound, you know? And it's just, mm, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's really unfortunate that animals have to suffer our need to produce drama to make our lives and our existence more interesting. And yeah. I mean, in some ways, I would argue that this would make them even more charismatic. I mean, apparently they're charismatic enough to get themselves on TV all the time. <laughs> we make entire movies about them. Like, yeah. you know, that's, I think that's a point in the charisma. <laughs> Definitely, for sure. Uh, all right, let's look at some of these other stats. We have their skills, and they have been given a stealth bonus of plus four. So usually stealth falls kind of under dexterity, but they specifically wanted to give them that stealth bonus, which makes sense. I mean, we've discussed how fast they can be. You talked about the crab spiders changing colors. I didn't even know spiders could change colors, which is just, I'm not going to get over that for a while. <laughs> they can't it do it. And yeah, it's it's a particular kind of, uh, ability they ha that they have involving um, the color that they've got a pigment in their skin and they're basically able to alter how much of this pigment is visible and that's kind of how it happens so it's not like color changing in perhaps the same way that a chameleon can change well I don't know maybe I'm not sure I'd have to yeah, I was gonna say the, the definition for chromatophore is pretty broad for the most part I mean chromatophores in most species are simply pigmented cells yeah. that you know can kind of change their pigmentation so it sounds like they have chromatophores. Now, it may not be as complex as an octopus, which has several chromatophores and it has leucophores and all these other things. But at the very least, it does have, it sounds like they have a pretty, pretty basic chromatophore where they can at least alter themselves in one pigment. Yeah, it's, I know it involves guanine, but I'm not entirely sure, if I'm honest, of the mechanisms behind how the guanine is used to change the color of the spider. But the way it appears, yeah. I don't know. I've never seen the... I, I know about chromatophores. I know what they are, but I've never seen it mentioned when talking about spiders changing colour. So I don't know if it's the same mechanism or something slightly more primitive. But yeah, certainly they don't have the abilities that things like squid and octopus and, you know, chameleons do in terms of the spectrum that they're able to, to change to. It's a pretty specific change from this color to that color and then there's a bit of a gradient in between you know so it's like you're either white or you're yellow but depending on how much of this change you've undergone you might be a kind of greeny kind of yellowy sort of color in between somewhere do you know what I mean so yeah, yeah it's uh, it's something that I certainly would like to learn more about myself it's not something that I've looked into specifically 
So that's another thing that's on my reading list for when we're done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but even still, like even with these guys, you know, a lot of when we think of most spiders, even when we think of basic ones, they typically come in neutral colors for the most part. When we think of wolf spiders and tarantulas and stuff like that, or ones that we see around the house, most spiders are going to come in anything of grays, browns, blacks, and things that help them disguise themselves and even colorful ones. Because you mentioned that the a Brazilian jewel spider basically hides most of its life. Yeah. So, you know, they're they're obviously designed either to camouflage or to hide themselves somewhere safe in burrows or in special web structures. Mm. So, I mean, it gives them a plus four, which is a pretty good advantage. But part of me thinks that they're probably our species that deserve higher advantages because you literally talked about the crab spider and staring at the flower and not even... Honestly. You're intentionally looking for it. Imagine yeah. people who aren't looking for it, just walking past, yeah, you know, you just never see it. dozens of spiders. Yeah. So I, I certainly think that some species like, you know, those or like trapdoor spiders and ones that hide in burrows that mm-hmm. are hidden because, you know, some tarantula burrows are pretty obvious when you see that big old hole in the ground. Yeah. But for things like trapdoor spiders and stuff like that, or your Brazilian jewel spiders that might collect some detritus from around to cover things up with, they obviously probably deserve a little bit higher of a stealth bonus probably yeah yeah definitely and i think another thing is their ability to move around undetected if you're not looking at it you you can't tell that a spider is walking around like i mean okay if you're talking about a massive tarantula obviously they've got some weight to them so if one were to walk over you you'd feel it but you know when you look at most of the spiders that you find in your house one could be walking up your arm and the only way you'd know it was there really is if it were to disturb some of the hairs on your skin. You can't necessarily feel its feet. It doesn't have enough weight to it. So it can crawl all over you undetected. If it's on your clothes, you'd have no idea. If it's in your hair, like you'd only know if it were to move a hair and you'd feel it on your scalp, you know? So I think in terms of stealth in that respect as well, you know, there's a lot to be said for the fact that they can move around undetected a lot more easily than a lot of other animals. So I think that probably counts in their favor too. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, the plus four is really good. I mean, I, I, I know people who play like rogue characters that are all about stealth that don't even get bonuses that good. And <laughs> these spiders at their base stealth are already getting uh, better stealth bonuses than some people who are supposed to have them. But yeah, I definitely say like plus sixes and plus eights for some of these other species. And I would, I'd agree, probably, especially when it comes to size, like the smaller the species, probably the greater the stealth mode is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So next up, we have their senses, and they're given dark vision, which makes sense because, you know, a lot of spiders, uh, I've seen plenty of spiders that are nocturnal. They move around and they do their hunting at night. So obviously, uh, they're not bothered by dim lighting. And it's not even their, you know, visual visual cues aren't even a lot of spiders' strongest sense. So, you know again, like dim light doesn't really affect them. But the fact that it gave them dark vision for 30 feet is debatable. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, their ability to get around in the dark is is sensory. You know, they're they're not seeing, they're sensing. They're perceiving their environment by touch and, you know, by the ability to pick pick up on vibrations in the air around them and vibrations caused by sound it's all basically touch sensitivity so although they can't see particularly well in the dark like even the ones that have pretty keen eyesight in very very low light levels they're still going to struggle you know um 
they can see better than a lot of spiders. I mean, you look at tarantulas, for example, like they can't see anything pretty much like their eyes. Oh, no. No, they're, they're, I mean, their eyes are in a tiny little cluster right on top of their cephalothorax. Like they don't have any particularly forward facing eyes. It's literally just a cluster of eight eyes stuck in a little blob right on top of their head pretty much. But they're very good for things like sensing levels of light and sensing shadows, you know, so they can sense movement by, you know, if sh- the change in shadows and they can sense light levels. So it helps them figure out how exposed they are or, you know, perhaps like what kind of, what time of day it is. If it's bright outside, then if they're nocturnal hunters, you know, if they can sense bright light, they'll stay until it, they'll stay hidden away until it gets dark. But no, their senses are uh, vibrational mostly. Like they have hairs all over their bodies that are all tuned to being able to pick up various different types of vibration. They feel the ground as they walk with their feet and they're just very, very keenly aware of movement around them. And they're also able to differentiate between vibrations caused by like background noise and, you know, non-threatening sounds to uh, noises made by creatures that could potentially hurt them in close proximity. You know, they're able to pick up on vibrations caused by bigger animals walking around. So they'll run away from that sort of thing, but they're able to, they're able to sense these vibrations with such accuracy that, you know, they know what prey is and they know what, you know, a a potential threat is and they will respond accordingly but they're unbelievably fast and they're unbelievable, unbelievably capable of like responding to these things. So the slightest movement from potential prey and they are on it in a flash. So even if they can't see, it doesn't affect their ability to perceive the world, the world around them and do what they need to do, you know? So, and that's, that's just tarantulas. You know, you've got other species of spiders out there that have much more um, acute vision. So wolf spiders, uh, jumping spiders, net casting spiders, they all have very large eyes that are designed to allow them to see um, because they're active hunters. They, they go out looking for their prey and they want to recognize certain shapes as well as, you know, light levels and movement and all that kind of thing. Um, but obviously in the dark, that's that's compromised so again they then have to work with vibrations and things like that for the most part you'll find that jumping spiders are diurnal so they hunt during the day when it's bright um but you have wolf spiders there are a little bit of both so although they're visual hunters and they have keen eyesight a lot of them will still hunt at night time they come out during the night and so you know they're able to see to an extent but still not like as well as a cat or you know not even a human i wouldn't have thought but it's you know when combined with this sensory perception they're extremely good at what they do so yeah i mean if dark vision encompasses other senses that enable them to get a sense of what's happening around them in the dark then i would say they're probably just as well off i'm I'm talking generally here not specific species but i would say on the whole spiders are just as capable in the dark as they are in the light so i would say that's probably pretty fair to say that they have decent dark vision well, my, my thing is like the distance just because I think that. Oh yeah, of course. The distance, yeah, yeah. For the most part, like I, I think like at minimum, usually they do like minimum distance would be 10 feet because um, creatures exist within a five foot square when you play the game. Yeah. And so naturally they should be able to see at least something nearby, which would be the next square over. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely yeah, say like. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I was sitting here thinking like they're, they're, you know, most of them can, can't even see, like you said, like they're not necessarily seeing clear outlines of things. They're seeing shadows of movement and stuff. They're not necessarily seeing things in any great detail. So of course, the further it gets away, the less detail there is anyway. Like 
how far back does a person have to be before it's, they're basically invisible to a spider senses yeah, when it comes right. to vision. Right. <laughs> yeah, 30, 30 feet's a little extreme. Yeah, we'll rein that in a really bit. Impressive spider. <laughs> rein that in quite a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'd probably leave it at the minimum 10 foot to say yeah. that they can see something in the, in the next like block over. And I mentioned this earlier to you, but there was... Um, as far as the non-visual cues, uh, blindsight is really what fills that in. Blindsight is the ability oh, yeah. to sense things in a non-visual way, and yeah. that would cover like the vibrations and stuff. So I would probably add that on because I don't know why they didn't give the spiders blindsight considering yeah, what course. their adaptations that are. That was mentioned in the other ones, wasn't it? The giant wolf spider and the, the giant spider. I think they had it, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. But it's it I'm sitting thinking like... In the, the general spider bit <laughs> yeah that's that's definitely like an overall spider adaptation so yeah i'd probably give them at least like a 10 foot blind sight 10 foot dark vision yeah. and they would probably complement each other like you said because depending on the species they might rely on more than more of one than the other but they definitely use both to a certain extent usually yeah definitely now it says their passive perception is 10 which is you know like that baseline but you know Passive perception is, you know, your ability to detect things without necessarily trying to pay attention to them. And I feel like spiders, even when they're not actively hunting, are still pretty alert creatures for the most part. Mm. And again, with things like, you know, their ability to sense vibrations and things like that, I feel like having, you know, a pretty like meh kind of passive perception doesn't really represent spiders. I feel like they would have a stronger perception than that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to, to get into like a detailed analysis of this, you'd be looking at specific species and specific genera, you know, who perhaps utilize silk for this kind of thing. So orb weavers, when they spin a great big orb web, you know, there's reason to believe that that acts as more than just, you know, a structure for them to hunt from. And, you know, it actually acts more like a giant ear, you know, it allows them to perceive what's going on around them without even necessarily sitting in the middle of it. You know, they sit in their little retreat off to the side and they have contact with the web and they can take in information from the surrounding area without actively looking for it. They're just aware, you know, but obviously a spider that doesn't live in an orb web that doesn't spin a web like that doesn't have that sort of perception of the uh, immediate of the surround of its surroundings. It's more, only really aware of what's happening in the immediate vicinity that is actually causing the air to move enough that its hairs can pick up vibrations. But you've got other things like tube web spiders over here, Suggestria species. They live in holes. They find a hole and they'll spin like a tube web inside it that they live inside. And then the entrance to that web has long radial threads that span out from the entrance that basically act a little bit like trip wires. So anything moving past, you know, the spider will be aware of whether it's actively hunting or not, whether it's, you know, looking for these things, just by merit of the fact that it's sat inside a structure that allows it to be aware of more than it would be without it, it's kind of amplified its perception that much, you know? So I think passive perception in spiders, generally, if you're talking about web spinning spiders, spiders that utilize silk for, you know, hunting, whichever way, I think those are the ones that have, you know, excellent passive perception. Then you've got things like huntsmen going back to them, you know, they don't use their web for anything more than safety lines and making egg sacs. You know, they don't spin retreats. They will find somewhere to sort of blend into or hide in sort of like, you know, behind a piece of bark or something like that. They don't really use their web for anything, certainly not hunting. 
it's very seldom used for that sort of thing. So there isn't really any perception enhancement from their silk. So they would be relying just on, you know, their ability to perceive the world around them through their senses, like, you know, the vibrations that they feel through their hairs and through contact with the ground, that kind of thing. So, yeah, certainly when you're talking about web, web building spiders, their passive perception would be excellent. Okay. And what about ones like tarantulas that have the, the hairs on their bodies that are kind of obviously not going to extend out as much as a web, but still increase their sensitivity? Would those, would those still kind of be on par with, you know, essentially like naked spiders that have less hair or? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, tarantulas are, well, obviously anyone who's seen a tarantula would agree, me, would agree with me here. They are on the hairy end of the, uh, <laughs> the, the spider hair spectrum. They are very fuzzy. And, you know, all of those hairs serve purposes, you know, sensory purposes or like defense purposes in the case of uh, new world species that use them to defend themselves. But um, in terms of, them the contribution that those hairs make to their perception like certainly the more hairs that are there to kind of take in what's happening around them the more sensitive they are to these things so you find some spiders like i mentioned earlier spitting spiders they're not particularly hairy they do have sensory hairs on their body but they're not like super fuzzy they don't have great big long hairs or spines sticking off their legs and when they're moving around and they're trying to sense the world around them quite often you'll see them walking with their three pairs of legs behind like their, their rear three pairs of legs and then the front pair of legs they've actually got up in front of them and they're feeling around with them so they don't actually use them so much for walking as they do for feeling around and seeing you know what they come up into contact with almost so, kind of like their version of antennae yeah kind of i mean they do use them for walking and they use them you know when they're um dealing with prey and they use them they use them when they're communicating with one another as well but it's just interesting to see that you know when they're walking around their front pair of legs is not used solely for, for walking. It's they're kind of held out in front of them. And yes, very much like, you know, an ant would use its antennae to sort of feel around as it's walking. These spiders do use their front pair of legs. And I guess, you know, that, that wouldn't be necessary for a tarantula because it's got so many more sensory hairs all over its body that pick up on everything from the slightest breeze to, you know, vibrations from, I don't know if it's sat in its burrow, it'll be able to sense vibrations of a mouse walking across the ground above it or, you know, all of these very subtle little things. So yeah, the more sensory hairs they have all over their bodies, the more sort of aware they are of the goings on around them. And they are very, very sensitive to it. So yeah, I would say something like a tarantula with a lot of sensory hairs all over its body certainly would have the edge when it comes to passive perception there. Yeah, and I, I remember seeing like uh, the first time I saw a tarantula, it was somebody's pet. And he was talking about how sensitive it was. And I remember him like just very gently blowing at it and its front little feet, like kind of going up, like jerking up, like, what was that? Yeah. Like, they're so reactive to, you know, environmental sensory that, you know, it's, it's, I can't imagine, like, I, I think of human hairs and how sensitive human hairs can be. And then I think, you know, what if my hairs were like a hundred times more sensitive than they are? Yeah. <laughs> how different I would experience the world in something as simple as like a breeze or a raindrop. So I guess, uh. We'll leave the, the 10 for the like basic naked spiders, you know, things yeah. like black widows and stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, maybe we'll bump tarantulas up to a 12 and for spiders that are a little bit more active in their use of webs in yeah. the ways that you described, the ones that actually produce things like orb webs or tunnel webs, sheet webs, things like that. Those ones would probably, I guess we could bump them up to like a 15 or 16 and say that they have a pretty strong passive perception. Yeah, your black widow would be in that 
in that category as well because they are very very sensitive to movement with their webs they create tangle webs that have like i was about to say hairs threads that extend from the ground like up into their tangle web and then they have a retreat and all of these threads are interconnected in such a way that they can sense when something's walking past and they know you know if something's stumbled into their web you know if it's prey they can sense ground dwelling prey so like cockroaches and anything else like that that would run along the ground they can find them if they run past those uh, threads that touch the ground that they that they anchor the web with they can sense them and they'll dart out and grab them so they although they're pretty naked you know i mean they do have their hairs but nothing like a tarantula they definitely benefit a lot from their uh, their webs as well that's why i've never actually seen a black wit like every time i've been presented with a black widow it does not have a web like, yeah, black widows, their webs are incredible and their silk is so strong. Like when I moved to America, I lived in California for a little while. I was learning a little bit about the spiders um, locally. And the first time I ever went out into the desert, this, I was talking to a few people and, they, and I was saying, I really want to see a black widow. I've never seen one before. And they said, like, look for tangle webs. Uh, so like webs that are built, you know, that just look like a tangled mess of silk with no real order to it. They have a lot of threads extended to the ground, you know, and they're usually built quite low to the ground um, under cover of, you know, things like structures like houses, you know, near like a drain pipe or something, or, you know, under cover of foliage or something. We find these tangle webs and test the silk. Like if you can touch the silk, if it breaks easily it's it's not a widow if that's strong if it's almost like fishing wire it's a widow their silk is unbelievably strong i couldn't believe it the first time i found some and felt it it was amazing oh that's wild yeah. i did not know that like it's literally like anytime you google pictures of black widow spiders or you see them like it's it's interesting they're almost never presented alongside their webs which yeah. would be interesting because obviously the webs are such a beneficial adaptation yeah. I don't know why I've never seen a picture of their webs. I always probably thought they were more like black widows. Yeah, I think it's probably because the black widow is another one of those spiders that's got a really bad rap and all people want to focus on is, oh my God, it's so scary. Look at that big hourglass on its belly. That means it's going to kill you. Like they're, not, they're too busy talking about how dangerous and deadly and awful it is to talk about its web. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's probably a very fair point, mm-hmm. unfortunately, for the spiders. Yeah. So next up, we have some of their abilities, and the first one is spider climb. So the spider can climb difficult sur- surfaces, including upside down on a ceiling, without needing an ability check. An ability check being, you know, whether or not they're actually capable of doing it. They can just go and do it because it's it's in their nature. Mm-hmm. And we've gone over this a bit. There's obviously spiders that have this ability. And uh, are all spiders capable of climbing even completely upside down on different surfaces? Or is that something that we've only really seen in certain kinds of spiders to an extent it would depend on the surface so you'll see things like tarantulas for example terrestrial tarantulas if you keep them you know in say a glass enclosure you'll quite often see that you know they have actually managed to climb up that glass a little bit and they have got modified like modifications to their feet that allow them to grip certain surfaces and yeah you would see that certain tarantulas would be able to climb up a wall even though it's not really what they're supposed to be doing if they're terrestrial species and it might even be able to step on the ceiling a little bit but it's not built to be doing that and it's not behavior that would come naturally to it it's not going to be making a habit of climbing up trees and you know the terrestrial species tend to stick to the ground. They make their burrows in the ground and they stick, they stick down there because it's safer for them. But that doesn't mean they can't do it. 
there are other species however you know your arboreal species so going back to our brazilian jewel that can climb up you know vertical surfaces and walk across the ceiling quite easily but again like the the how effective it is you know how able it is to do that does depend very much on the surface it's walking on so if it's walking around on smooth glass or plastic you might find that they sometimes have a little bit of difficulty gripping that Whereas, you know, there are other species of spider out there who have maybe slightly different arrangement of hairs on their feet or, you know, their little tarsal claws that they grip things with that wouldn't have a problem running around on glass or plastic. Also, size comes into it, you know, how heavy they are, whether gravity is going to be working against them. But for the most part, most spiders would be able to capably like run up a wall or, you know, walk across the ceiling, provided they're not super heavy and provided that the surface they're walking on allows them a little bit of grip. That's fair. And I've I've certainly seen like some of our local jumping spiders, like I've been surprised to see them climbing up our, so we have a regular door and then we have a screen door that has a glass screen versus like um, one of the mesh ones. And Mm. I've watched them climb right up that glass and I'm just like, you know, considering where you would what you would normally climb in nature like the fact that your adaptations cover everything from plant stems to glass is really impressive that you know nature doesn't normally make things that are glassy very often and when they do when it does it's not necessarily in all places it's pretty selective so the fact that the spider had the ability to climb up my glass screen door like it was nothing I was like dang yeah it is pretty impressive but I think like you know those sort of adaptations help, you know, if they're going to be walking around on things like quite waxy leaves, for example, out in the wild, if they come across plants that have very waxy leaves and are quite shiny, you know, you find jumping spiders in their natural environment tend to hunt quite a lot, you know, in trees and quite high up. So the ability to walk across a surface like a waxy leaf is definitely going to be a benefit. So that sort of ability would then translate to, as you say, like walking on glass. It's not going to encounter glass necessarily, but certainly quite shiny, slippery surfaces are something that's something that hunts in a tree is going to come upon, you know, perhaps a little bit more often than something that hunts primarily on the ground. So, but yeah, it is absolutely incredible when you see what they can do. And like with the amount of spider species that I keep here in captivity, seeing which ones can climb that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of as being particularly good climbers is always, you know, pretty interesting. Like the wolf spiders are useless at it. They can't climb plastic at all. Uh, oh, no. they, they just, they, they're just like flailing around. You can hear their little feet like scratching on the plastic trying to climb up it. But unless they've actually got some kind of purchase, like they, they can't get up it by themselves. But, you know, if there was one walking up a brick wall, like no problem, it can run vertically up a brick wall. I would probably be able, it would probably be able to walk across my ceiling because my ceiling's painted with like eggshell paint. So it's got more of a kind of porous kind of matte surface to to walk on. It wouldn't want to be on the ceiling, but it would have more chance of being able to negotiate a ceiling than a plastic container, which it is absolutely useless at. So yeah, it's quite incredible seeing which ones are good at it and which ones aren't. That's so funny. I love it. <laughs> Let's see. Web sense. While in contact with a web, the spider knows the exact location of any creature in contact with the same web. And I feel like we've, we've covered this pretty, pretty thoroughly as far as like, you know, obviously not all spiders make webs. And for those that do make webs for the purpose of using it for sensory and hunting and things like that, obviously that's a completely reasonable thing for the spider to be able to do. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the web sense pretty much ties in with the passive perception bit we were talking about before, you know, the ability to sense its environment just through 
what the silk kind of offers in terms of an extension of its inbuilt senses, you know, its, its ability to sense vibration through hairs and, you know, being, having contact with the surface, you know, being able to have contact with a web that in turn has contact with several different surfaces and also picks up on vibrations in the air as well, enhances, you know, its ability to perceive its environment around it. So it's web sense. When you're looking at spiders that are web builders, so again, you know, orb weavers, widows, other theridiads, um, theridiads are theridiadi is the family that widows belong to so all of that family tend to build the same kind of tangled web but any of these spiders you know they have this ability to extend their senses quite considerably some of these webs that they construct are huge so you think all the information that a web like that can pick up you know when you look at things like golden orb weavers some of those orb webs are absolutely enormous you know a good couple of feet if not more in diameter that's picking up a hell of a lot of information and the spider doesn't necessarily have to be sat in the middle of it it can be you know off to the side or somewhere as long as it's got contact with that web somewhere it's picking up on everything that that web is is picking up on so yeah it's web sense is insane it's extremely good and it, it's such a cool feature of spiders like it's one of those things where it's like you know we're all raised and it's like oh yeah spiders build webs and they catch they catch their food in it cool it's like nobody sits down and really discusses with you when you're a kid, like all the things that spiders can potentially do with a web. I mean, even something like flying, like the spiders that, that you know, use little catch lines and they'll put out a little yes. silk and let the wind pick it up and literally just carry them off. It's like, yeah. you know, who, who, who nature thinks of some pretty cool ways around certain problems. And sometimes it's a spider, you know, putting out a little silk from its butt and catching a lift on the wind. Yeah, it's called ballooning. And when they get a little bit too big to be able to balloon successfully, because their body weight, you know, is perhaps not conducive to flying around on a thread of silk like that. They use a similar technique called bridging, which is where they will just let a thread of silk go from their spinnerets. So they'll just let it fly for a little while. And then when they feel it make contact with something, they will scale it, they will climb it so they can actually transport themselves to somewhere that they wouldn't ordinarily have been able to reach, which is quite often how you see, you know, when you see orb weavers who've built a web and you think, how on earth did you get up there to make an anchor point for a web? <laughs> All, how did you do that? And it's because, you know, when they've been deciding where to, to make this web, one of the things that they will do is they will let out a string of silk and as soon as it makes contact with something, they'll test the tension on that line. They'll be like, right, yep, that feels like a good anchor point. They'll go up there, they'll scale that thread of silk, they'll anchor it properly, they'll come down and they'll start using it as an anchor point for their web. But not only, uh, you know, transportation, so getting from A to B and, you know, all that kind of thing with ballooning and bridging and also sensing their environment, uh, they use it for communication amongst themselves as well. So when it comes to mating, uh, females quite often will imbue sort of chemicals into their web that that pheromones um that basically a male can pick up on so when he enters a female's web he can sense from the chemicals that she has uh, like i guess impregnated her silk with whether she is receptive to mating or not and so he knows whether or not to stick around and try courting her or whether you know he's unlikely to have any luck here it goes so far beyond just vibrations there is a whole like the the uses of spider silk are absolutely incredible. I actually got to witness that this summer uh, during uh, the June time period. I think it was June or early July. A spotted orb weaver female literally made her web every night across our back door, which is glass. So I could basically sit inches from the spider on the other side of the glass and watch her catch and eat things. One night I opened the door 
and she was very violently like picking at her web, like causing it to vibrate and like, oh my gosh, is she okay? She looks like she's seizing. <laughs> and eventually after looking around, I saw this tiny spider, like one fifth her size, just ever so gently like plucking. It was, it's like he was gently plucking an instrument, like trying to serenade her. So I had this, you know, image in my head of him gently plucking an acoustic guitar and she's <laughs> responding with like, like this electric guitar because she's like violently shaking the entire web every time she responded to him. And it was, I watched them do this for hours and I was just like, I wonder what they're saying. <laughs> it was so cool. I was so ecstatic to witness that. I've never wit witnessed spider courtship in my entire life outside of like thing. media. And that was so cool for me to watch. Yeah. That's another thing. That's a, that's an unbelievably diverse area of spider behavior as well. Like once you start going down that rabbit hole, you'll be in there for hours. <laughs> Days. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> I mean, 40,000 species, I'm pretty sure you can't please the same female spider 40,000 times the same way. So I, <laughs> I can imagine what nature's done. Yeah, it's incredible. Oh, that's so cool. Let's see. Webwalker. This one's pretty generic. The spider ignores movement restric restrictions caused by webbing. So assuming that it is the spider's own web, that makes sense. Now, you, we talked earlier about a little bit of predation among spiders and like the dangers of like a Porsche missing its mark mm -hmm. and how, you know, that would be, that would endanger it. Now, is there something where spiders really can't just walk along any spider silk? Is it an issue where they can get tangled in other spiders webs because, you know, it's either the construction like a tangled web or it's a different texture of web and they can't walk across it easily or in the case of a Porsche which doesn't typically make a web to hunt they're just not adapted for web walking because that's the way they are yeah it's um the first thing that springs to mind for me as an example of this is in my house around about this time of year we get the big male uh, giant house spiders running around looking for females now most of the time they're on the ground but quite often you will see that they've you know climbed up a wall Every now and then I might see one that's got as far as the ceiling and is just kind of hiding in a little nook up there. The other thing I have a lot of in this house are the cellar spiders, the Fulcus phalangioides, um, the really skinny leggy ones. Mm -hmm. And they are notorious spider murderers. They feed very heavily on other species of spider and there are very few species that you know sort of occur in the same areas that are better than them at taking down other spiders. And quite often, you know, I've seen these male house spiders, they'll have stumbled into a corner of the room where a cellar spider has made a web. Their silk is very sort of tangled and messy as well. And depending on how long they are in an area undisturbed, it can spread quite far. So if one of these house spiders ends up in there, it can't negotiate its way out of that silk terribly well because it's just not designed for moving around on silk. It's a, you know, it's the kind of spider that runs on the ground. It's not a spider that's built for moving around in a web. Their webs, like the, the giant house spiders as juveniles and the females, like their webs are also quite expansive, but they tend to be like a sheet that the spider sits on top of. And it has like a funnel shaped retreat in the back. So when it feels vibrations on this sheet, it just kind of runs out on top of this sheet, grabs whatever's there and runs back in. It's not a case of negotiating its way across several different fibers and threads and everything. You know, it's more just like running on a, on a mat of silk. So when it finds itself in a web of that, you know, of the Fulcus um, species, it, it can't really get out. And it certainly can't get out quick enough to avoid the Fulcus knowing it's there, hit, feeling its vibrations, rushing in there and doing what, it's do what it does best, which is basically taking out 
whatever enters its web. They may be extremely skinny and leggy and, you know, very small bodies and very fragile looking, but they're so good at what they do. They just chuck a whole load of silk around whatever's in their web, wrap it all up, deliver a bite, and that's it, done. And they'll eat spiders several times their own size. I mean, in terms of size and weight, those giant house spiders are much bigger than the cellar spiders. They're huge by comparison, but they don't stand a chance because they just don't have the ability to negotiate that kind of web. So, yeah, I mean, there are certainly instances where they will come horribly unstuck if they end up in the webs of others. But by the same token, there are some species out there who are um, specialised when it comes to walking in the webs of spiders that are not their own species or even genus, and they will parasitise these spiders by stealing the prey that their webs are catching. Um, They'll also parasitise their eggs. Um, There are species of spiders that will go and work their way into... um, another spider species web and they will eat the spider or eat its eggs or something and they will lay their own eggs in that area near that spider's web so that when the young come out they can also benefit from whether it's the other spider's young or prey that's in that spider's web they're basically very opportunistic so they'll just go and work their way into another spider's web and take full advantage of it whether it is by hunting that spider themselves or just taking the prey that that spider web catches. So there are species out there that are specialized when it comes to walking on the silk of other species. That's wild. I, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, when I read this and it's like spider ignores restrictions caused by webbing, it's like part of me is like, yeah, spiders can walk on webs, but then it's also, you know, like not all spiders even use webs. So do they even have feet designed to walk on webs, let yeah. alone not get tangled in them? And, you know, as you said, it's obviously going to rely on the species of spider and also what whose web they wandered it into because tangled webs you know i mean this is it's one of those things where i had to learn the hard way that there's cobwebs and there's cobwebs so there's cobwebs because you don't dust well and there's cobwebs because a spider actually made it you know they're two yeah <laughs> different types of cobwebs but you know yeah. spider cobwebs are often like that tangle structure and when I learned that it it blew my mind that any spider could negotiate that absolute mess like you know orb weavers you know you can look at that and it's like okay that's simple like there's some circles here there's some straight lines down here pretty easy to negotiate because you know everything goes in a very specific direction no problem but then I see those tangled webs and I'm like holy moly how do you even exist on the same plane of existence in this way (laughs) yeah no the the ones that are specialized you know who who build those webs they are in their element in those webs like you take a black widow out of her web and put her on the ground and watch her run like she's clumsy as anything she's not good on the ground her feet are designed for moving quickly on silk so you know upside down in her web is where she is her most comfortable but then, you know, if you if you were to take a tarantula and just plop it into a black widow's web from above, wouldn't stand a chance. It can't walk on that. It can't get it can't get out of that. With silk that's strong and so dense and so tangled, if you put a tarantula, I'm not talking about like a massive one that would just tear the whole thing down with its body weight, but you know, like a, a juvenile or maybe even a small adult species, like whatever, if you were to take a tarantula and put it into a web like that, it would be it would be over in seconds. It seems like with the vast majority of these different stats that these creatures have, it's really going to depend on who you choose to represent your spider as far as whether or not they even need some of these things. Because, you know, if you're selecting a wolf spider for, you know, this creature, it's not really going to need web 
anything for the most part, because, you know, if it's fighting, if, if we're talking about an encounter where you're fighting an animal, you're not going to be fighting a wolf spider on a web the way you might battle no. something like a black widow. No, you will be worrying about the wolf spider, like physically doing something to you rather than getting one over on you using its web. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I guess it helps that they put these uh, stats there to be able to say what these spiders are capable of. But obviously, like all these different features do not amount to one particular species of spider. It's little pieces of a lot of different spiders all rolled up into one. Yeah. And let's see. And finally, we have their action. They can bite. Big surprise. (laughs) Uh, we're going to skip most of the stuff in here, but it does actually mention, so in this game, they don't differentiate poison and venom. Uh, I've made the argument more than once that it should be toxin damage versus poison damage, because at least if it's toxin damage, it can be venom or poison. And, you know, depending on how it's injected or digested would determine whether or not it's one or the other. But, you know, nobody listens to me when I say, you know, (laughs) just say toxic. Like if you don't know if it's poisonous or venomous, just say it's toxic because you're still right. Um, But it does apparently uh, cause poison damage, which for most spiders makes sense. Now, of course, it's generic. It says take two 1d4 damage, so maximum eight points of damage. But if we are talking about something highly venomous, obviously it's going to be higher. Or if we're talking about a species of spider that has very tiny like chelicerae and it can't get those little fang tips into human skin easily, let alone bite through armor, I mean... It's not even doing any damage, let alone poison damage to a person. So, you know, that's definitely something that it seems like depending on what species you choose for your spider will determine whether or not it can even really cause that kind of damage to people. Yeah, I think a notable mention for this section is going to be the splitting spider because that has a hunting strategy that takes the the bite kind of out of the equation initially it does deliver a bite but not until it has used this other strategy that it has that blew my mind when i first learned about it basically they have the ability to combine their venom into a sticky kind of gluey substance that they produce um, and shoot it out of their fangs basically just spitting it at other organisms that it is hunting. So when it's hunting, it finds something that it wants to take down. It spits this glue at them. When it spits, it lifts its chelicerae up and points its fangs forward, shoots this stuff out of the holes in its fangs and rapidly moves its chelicerae side to side as it's doing it. So the result is a zigzag of this sticky glue that is, it's got this, this venom inside it as well. Um, and when it hits the prey, it basically glues it down holds it down in the, sp- in the spot that it was standing in, which oh, allows wild. the spider to then approach carefully and deliver a bite that will finish the job and allow it to start feeding, knowing that it's unlikely to sustain any damage from this prey f- thrashing around. Now, because of the venom component, or I suppose actually in this case, you'd call it a poison because it's not being injected. It's being absorbed through the cuticle of this uh, organism, which is quite interesting because it's a venom in that it's active when it's injected, when it bites the prey as well, but it also is able to be absorbed through the cuticle and therefore would also be considered a poison in that respect too. So that's, that's an interesting kind of uh, element of spider toxicity that kind of straddles that venom poison kind of thing. But yeah, they can just spit this stuff a couple times from quite a distance, you know, comparable to body size. 
and basically just wait for it to do enough of its job for them to safely approach their prey, deliver a bite and start feeding. So that's kind of an extension of like the bite uh, element of, you know, their ability to attack and do damage, I think, is that, you know, if you were, if we're going the route of species specifics, if you were to look at a spitting spider for this one, it's got a distance advantage that other spiders don't have which I think is super cool. And I think when it comes to coming, coming up with a creature for something like this, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, like a spitting spider would be awesome. You know, take some of the <laughs> elements of its hunting strategy and add that into some kind of mythical creature that you're coming up with. And that is just so cool. Like, it's amazing. I love them. <laughs> well, in, in, in some cases you could even, so you could probably for that, since it is separate. So the, the poison damage being done with a bite is obviously done in conjunction with the bite, but you're talking about this glue being something separate before the bite occurs. Hmm. So there are certain things like sticky bombs or the spell sticky floor and stuff like that. Like there are things that exist that have that challenge where the spider would be able to take that as an action to spit out this sticky substance. Hmm. And then the person would have to do something like, either roll a dexterity check to avoid it at first. And then if they can't get out of the way, they get stuck in that position. And then on the next turn, they would have to do something like maybe a constitution or a strength check to see if they can actually get themselves out of the sticky substance. Yeah. And uh, if they can't, then they're stuck until, you know, either a certain amount of time passes or until they can roll roll well enough to actually get out of it. So in that case, you could argue that you could just create an entirely different action for yeah. a spitting spider, which would be yeah, really yeah. cool. Yeah, definitely. And I can't really think of many other spiders, except maybe one like the bolus spider, for example, that spins this silk that has a droplet on the end that it swings around to try and grab its prey. You know, that might perhaps constitute a different action as well. But I just think that the the spitting spider and what it does and the sort of relation to the bite in, in terms of the presence of venom or poison in the spit that it produces like i yeah i think that relates nicely to a bite so it'd be like an action that would take place before the bite like you said and then your opponent would have to try it and negotiate their way out of it you know and there might be like um a time element involved in it as well because the longer you're held down by this web the more this poison's going to take hold and the weaker you're going to get and the less likely you're going to be to cut yourself free you know i mean i i'm not you know i'm not a huge player of games such as this so like i don't know the complexities of how that might work but to my mind it feels like something that has quite a lot of potential to make it a more formidable opponent Oh, absolutely. And you absolutely can make uh, spells and attacks that compound over time or that are constantly causing things like, you know, every every turn you take X amount of poison damage until you get yourself free. And in which case that poison damage would, of course, be whittling away a person's health unless they have poison immunity, in which case, you know, lucky them, they just need to get out. But (laughs) most characters won't have that. So that that would be a really cool boss. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I suppose the only kind of immunity that you'd have to something like that would depend on maybe your armor or something, like how armored you are and whether or not that poison would be able to penetrate it. Well, if it's a, if it's about initially getting caught by it too, any player yeah. that has a high enough dexterity, things like monks and rogues and stuff that are meant to move fast and quickly and stuff might be able to avoid it initially to where, you know, your big bulky Goliath character who's a barbarian would probably struggle a bit (laughs) trying to get out of this because they're just a giant weight on top of a sticky substance yeah very cool it would be that would uh, now 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 i'm going to be thinking all night about different ways you can make that into a move because i knew that i knew that some spiders could spit like lynx spiders that we mentioned earlier i know that 
I've heard of at least one species, if not others, that can sometimes spit their venom, but it's not sticky like you mentioned. It's just them spitting some of the venom. Yeah, it's more like a defense. So like, I think the context that I read about it in most recently was females defending their eggs. You know, they don't necessarily want to leave the eggs to you know get rid of anything but they'll they'll try and deter anything from coming any closer by spitting venom but it's not a hunting strategy yeah it's a defense whereas like the way the spitting spiders have evolved to do this is like they're they're using the venom that is produced in their venom glands mixing it with this sticky like gelatin not gelatinous mucilaginous substance that you know is basically like a poisonous glue i mean that's just so brilliant it's so brilliant it's amazing that is it's it's really cool and it's not you know, I, whenever I come on and I talk with people who are bigger experts than me, I always expect to learn something new, but I don't usually expect to get my mind blown so many times in a row by <laughs> so many different things. Like I really am going to be Googling uh, those lynx spiders and looking up your pictures of your babies. Cause yeah. I, I, I'm so used to like, most people have seen the viral peacock spiders and I have seen pictures of the Brazilian jewels before. Like I know that spiders can be really pretty and attractive, but you know, there are some that I associate with being very basic spiders and link spiders in my mind are, you know, as far as their appearance goes, they've got really good camouflage, but it's nothing to write home about as far as appearance goes, but they do have some cool adaptations, but learning that they can have really cool adaptations and just be a little sparkle muffin is. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. They are incredible creatures. And honestly, like, even if I spent every waking hour of my life reading about them, I would never learn everything there is to know about them. They're just so incredibly diverse and interesting. There's just, there's just so much to know about them. And it pains me to know that I will never know all of it. (laughs) I know that's the worst about invertebrates too. There's so much to know and so little time. I I mean, (laughs) you know for all those people that study like one big charismatic like species it's easy for them like whatever exists on the species you know you can you can put that in a book and read you can't produce a book that any human being can carry about some of these groups of animals like spiders like it just you can't fit that all into one place it's Uh, it's always going to be all over the place yeah but it's good because it means you're never going to run out of things to learn about that's very true, which is the joy of being alive, in my opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's our super generic baseline, like just spider. Like it can be anybody or anything. And of course, you have to tweak it based on who it is. And you obviously presented us with a lot of really great ideas for, <laughs> you know, who might fit the bill. Yep. I definitely think the Huntsman is a really cool choice because I think, especially for those of us in the States, like that's not a really common spider that we discuss unless we're talking about like the insanely big ones in other countries. Um, But I mean, they're just as diverse as any spider. Not every Huntsman spider is this monstrous spider that's running around like terrorizing the internet. uh, (laughs) No, some of them are super pretty. I mean, in the UK, we only have one native species and it's very small and it's bright, brilliant green an absolutely stunning spider and one that I very much look forward to finding out in the wild. They don't occur in my area, so I'll have to go looking for them uh, elsewhere. But yeah, they're absolutely stunning. And to look at, you wouldn't necessarily see straight away and think, yeah, my God, that's a huntsman. You know, they have the features that define a huntsman in terms of like their eye arrangement um, and other sort of subtle details like that. But they've got quite an elongated 
abdomen, uh, abdomen that terminates in a point rather than just like a round abdomen, like some of the massive Australian huntsman species that you see. Um, and like I said, they're this bright, brilliant, like apple green color. So yeah, you wouldn't necessarily see that and think, oh my God, it's a huntsman, especially as they only reach about maybe just over an inch in their leg span. Maybe a little bit more than that. I'm very, really bad at judging sizes without a ruler in front of me, but they're certainly not big spiders by any stretch. We have much larger spiders than that native in the UK, and we are not known for large species of anything. But yeah, they're, they're also extremely diverse huntsmen in their shapes and their colours and everything. So yeah, they're a very, very cool, very cool species to uh, consider, I think. And that's a bit of a fair point to bring up too, is the size of spiders based on location, because very often... You know, if you are talking, it's one of those things where it's like, I understand it's fantasy, but when I see like ice spiders up in like the northern climes of the world and stuff like that, it's like one, invertebrates don't like cold. Like You have to be magical for the invertebrate to typically be able to tolerate the cold because there's very, 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 very few species of uh, like insect and arachnid in like the far northern reaches of the world. Like I don't go spider hunting in the northern part of Canada. Like if I want to find a great diversity of spiders i'm going to go south where it's yeah. warmer absolutely um, and then with uh especially places that have high oxygen content too very often places that provide more oxygen like big forests will also provide your large spiders so for me you know the giant forest spiders make sense because in my mind it's like okay we're in a warm spot there's lots of oxygen there's a great diversity of other invertebrates for them to eat so it makes sense that this is where you would find, you know, your massive monster spider. But that's just yeah. my inner ecologist trying to logic magic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Like we in the UK, obviously, you know, Northern Hemisphere, quite a temperate kind of environment. We don't really get, or we shouldn't really get such high temperatures for, you know, extended periods of the year. And we can get quite harsh winters, you know, so there's a period of time where everything is very cold a lot of frost and ice and, you know, occasional snowfall and stuff. So we have a variable enough climate that some of the spiders that thrive in hot and humid areas, you know, could not possibly survive outside of a captive environment over here. And, you know, you see a lot of our spiders, they're active at certain times a year, and then it goes very, very quiet throughout winter. You don't really find much because, you know, they've lived out their life cycle in, a lot of them will have lived out their life cycle in the space of a year. So looking at orb weavers, for example. So all of the adults have disappeared. The egg sacs are lying dormant. When spring comes around and the temperatures start to warm up, that triggers them to hatch. And that's when you start seeing the cycle repeat all over again. So we don't really have anything big because our, our climate doesn't really support that kind of growth and that kind of that kind of adaptation, you know, to those sort of environments like warm, humid forests that don't have huge fluctuations in temperature. You know, these spiders don't have to cram their entire life cycle into a relatively short period of time. They don't have to cram all of their growth into like, you know, a season because as far as they're concerned, it's pretty similar year round, you know. And so you know that pretty much any time of year you go into a rainforest, you're going to be finding big spiders. There's not going to be a period of time where they're like, oh, it's too cold. We're going to die off now and come back next year. <laughs> So, yeah. All right. And that's going to be a wrap for this episode. I'm sorry that was so incredibly long. It just, we had so much going on. There was so much to discuss and we, we covered just so much and it, 
it, it was it was a lot. It was a lot. But it was so much fun talking to her. I, I learned a lot. It was a lot of fun. I have a lot of ideas now. And I certainly hope for those of you who do play role play and tabletop games that maybe this gives you some ideas too for fun and creative ways of interpreting spiders in these types of games. If you want to follow her on social media, on Twitter, her handle is T underscore Francis. That's T-E-A underscore F-R-A-N-C-I-S. And you'll see her screen name is actually the same as her Instagram, which is Scientific, which is really cute. But you can find her on Instagram under that name, though. So Scientific is spelled S-C-I-E-N-T-E-A-F-I-C-C. And you'll see her plethora of spider pictures. You can see her beautiful lynx spiders, which as soon as I recorded that episode, like while we were talking, I actually Googled what the species was. And then I went and looked up pictures of her stuff and just, it's gorgeous. It's all gorgeous. But anyway, if you have any questions or comments for me about this episode, you can reach out to my email, the naturalist at the naggingnaturalist.com. And you can check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. I'm also on social media. You can reach me there. I'm the Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. And you can help out my podcast by leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts and podchaser.com to help support and bring visibility to the podcast. Like I said, I'm going to skip the rest of my usual outro stuff and just say I'll see you guys tomorrow with... Uh, the next episode. So this is going to be broken up into three parts. So today was the big one. There will be one tomorrow for Halloween and then a following one on Sunday, November 1st. So stick around and listen to some of the other really cool (laughs) spider stuff that we got into. Oh, and also I did want to preface, some of you may have noticed certain things were brought up. If you heard my episode with Dr. Catherine Scott, and then you heard this and wonder why I didn't bring up some of the things that Catherine Scott discussed or that I repeated certain things that I asked her about later. It's because this was recorded before my episode with Catherine Scott. But anyway, I'll let you guys go. And I'll be back tomorrow (laughs) with another new episode with T. Francis and more really cool D&D spiders.